Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views expressed on the following program are not necessarily the views of WIBA, its management sponsors, or staff. Broadcasting live from Planet Madison, where everything is beyond parody. This is the Vicki McKenna Show. To be a part of the program, in Madison, call 321-1310. Statewide, call toll-free at 877-235-1310. Or email vicki at wiba.com. Now, here's Vicki McKenna. Afternoon. Welcome to the program. I am Vicki McKenna, News Talk 1310 WIBA. I see Joel back in the studio. I'm back. He's back. One day only. I tell ya, the beard. Oh, it's a good one. It looks good. Well, thanks. It looks all tidy and all neat and, and brushed and curled and sprayed or moosed or something. What'd you do? Uh, you know, just a little water, a little of my wife's brush that, uh, you know, you got to keep going over and over and over and over and over until it finally you know you isn't all knotted up. Do you up. know what you need? Oh, boy. You need a flat iron. Oh, no. That's what you need. I've, uh, yes. There are videos of people doing that online. Flat iron your beard. And it's, it generally goes poorly. So then, what about a curling brush? Curling brush. Thing is, my hair is very curly as it is. I don't know if I need any more curl in my beard. No, it's to straighten it out. I just sort of, you know, straight. Just you're pulling your whole face off as you do it. But I'm just saying, <laughs> on you, it'll look good. Yeah. Hey, All I'm right. supposed to ask. Uh, someone told me to ask you if uh, you had a dance performance or something. So ah, uh, yes, it, I, dance I, I performance. Was I did. Because you were not here on was, Friday. Was the uh, was, I was the in, man involved? The man was involved, and uh, Happily, yes, or uh, just just involved. Um, I, uh, <laughs> just dragged along. No, generally, generally enthusiastically and positive. But but when we, you know, I mean, it was, there's it was a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. And this is wait. So you you did a performance like in front of people? Yes, yes, of a foxtrot to Frank Sinatra's Lean Baby. Oh my! And and mind you, I've taken dance lessons before. Okay, and I I'm the one who screwed it up. And my my uh, partner in crime, my boyfriend who'd never taken dance lessons, and, and is just so frustrated because if you've never done this before, it can be really you know confusing. And he killed it, just knocked it out of the park. Wow! Me, I'm I screwed up. So, um, but he killed it. So yeah, it went well. It went well. Well, that's for good one to of hear. us. I mean, I guess not for both of us. How much maintenance did he do on his giant beard? He's got a very small beard. Oh no, he's maintenance very, No, no, just just kind of keeps it. You know, does not get, get, gets like that, and he's sleeping out in the garage. Well, <laughs> then what's the point of having a beard if you can't have a massive one that you have to comb out? <laughs> I don't know. What is the point? You know, you fellas can get together and discuss this amongst yourselves. Do you see? There's a new. We have someone new here. Uh, that was kind of wandering the hallways, who has a very well-manicured big beard. We became best friends. Really? Yeah. Beard best friends. Oh, beard buddies. Beard buddies. BBs. There's three <laughs> of you now then, right? There's there's um, there's Cody mm-hmm. in sales. 
there's you, and now there's this new person lurking about yeah. with also a massive Ahab-like, Captain Ahab-like beard. Yeah, he asked me where I get it all trimmed up and barbered up. I said, I'm still looking, so if he finds something, let me know. You know, it's, that's cute. You guys are bonding over beards. Isn't it that's amazing? A, that's darling, actually. Ugh. No, I mean, this is a thing. I think it's a reaction to the um, to the hyper-metrosexualization of men, that men started growing beards. I think it was this their way of saying, you know, I don't want to look like a girl. I don't want to be crammed into like a, like a sausage into skinny jeans. I want to look like a guy. I think that's where it originally came from. The beards will come and go in popularity based on other men's fashions. So I think this was just a way to counterbalance some of the more um, hyper um, thinified and feminized men's fashions. I, I like that theory. So we're kind of the, the slapback. You're kind of a slapback. Yeah. Oh, I like yeah. that. I never thought about that. But it's probably actually there's probably some truth. In I that. don't think that's that explains it all. But I think that there is probably an element, a, a pretty strong element of truth. To also, that, so. we probably all just kind of feel like emasculated men. So we just need to reach out somehow, you know, buy a big truck, get a giant whatever. Beard. Oh, wait, that's me in a nutshell. That's right. A big black truck. <laughs> of course, you are the guy, the proverbial guy in the big I black truck. I apparently do not think very highly of myself as a man, apparently. So why? Because well, you have a big black well, truck. I say the big truck, the beard. I mean, you know, the Carhartt jackets. I'm clearly trying to just you go duck hunting a man, but I'm not really one apparently. No, you are identif- You are identifying as a man, and of course, you are microaggressing other men who don't want to identify as men or who have been cowed into not wanting to identify as men, but still actually secretly want to. Got it? Okay. Good. That makes sense. Good to see you in the studio, Joel. Here's what's coming up on the program. Um, The Democrats think they have a new strategy for winning the hearts and minds. Swearing. I'm interested. Swearing. No, this, I actually thought it was a joke. I thought it was one of these headlines that was just, you know, a, a, a way to just be sort of kitschy about something stupid a Democrat said. No, no, no. It's actually a strategy. So we'll get to that coming up on the program. Also ahead on the show... Um, we are going to be, hang on, I should probably look this up. We'll be talking about the, the push to create sanctuary policies locally. I mean, anti-sanctuary policies locally to fight back against the push to create local sanctuary policies. We'll chat about that. Um, let's see. Chris Horner will join me. There is a movement afoot to try to pressure the Trump administration into withdrawing from the U.N. climate treaty. And in light of the fact that now the same people who are predicting global warming are now predicting mass global cooling, it might not be a bad idea to do that. We'll be back with more of this coming up. I'll be right back. I will wait for you. Welcome back to the program. So the Democrats are having difficulty winning elections, which is not to say that the Republicans aren't having difficulty winning hearts and minds, but Democrats are definitely having difficulty winning elections. So the Democrats want to win more elections and the Republicans, I'm not sure, but I hope they want to win more hearts and minds. Um, but we're going to focus on how the Democrats think they're going to be able to win elections. And one, and I honestly thought this was an Onion headline or I was being trolled or something. But this is real. One of the deliberate choices the Democrats are making in terms of tactics is swearing, swearing, using profanity 
to get their points across. And again, the confrontational style is back. We saw that with Tom Nelson and Scott Walker. Um, we know that the Democrats are all about trying to engage confrontation, rude, vulgar confrontation again. David Johnson from Strategic Vision is on the phone with me to talk about this. So first on the swearing, David, this is real. This is not just some um, funny headline that was generated by somebody at the Daily Caller. No, this is real. Uh, Tom Perez, the DNC chair, uh, believes and has uh, been instructing other surrogates to go around the country, drop the F word. It seems more authentic. Voters can relate to it. They think it's a way to, you know, really reconnect with working class white voters. In fact, though, it's not working very good for him. He was up in Maine with Bernie Sanders, and he began dropping the F-bomb. And the audience there, which were Democrats, actually booed him off the stage. Good, good, good. This is stupid. It's stupid. It is, we're seeing this uh, across the country. How uh, are these, these guys Democrats able? Using this. Damn, how are these people able to, to you know, basically control the conversation over this last health care law. Republicans want to kill people and kick them off the insurance of pre-existing conditions when they're so stupid they don't realize that walking into an event and just dropping F-bombs does not make one authentic. They're out of touch. Look, it's still all about identity politics. They don't understand what really resonates with the average American voter. And we've seen this. They're no longer, you know, the party that represents working-class Americans. They're the party all about identity, about elitism, and, I mean, really, they're condescending. I mean, this dropping the F-bomb not only is offensive, but it's condescending to voters. Well, it's not just, yeah, it's condescending and it's, it's dismissive of voters. So here you, basically what it's, what that shows is that Democrats have so little respect for the people in the audience that they would abuse them, even, even verbally abuse them. And and then somehow that's supposed to be the Democrats showing that they care so much and they understand. Look, they basically think they've got a problem with white voters. Has it not occurred to them that part of the reason why they have a problem with white voters is that um, a couple of election cycles ago, they decided to abandon all logic. They decided to abandon the voters in the middle and they no longer thought they needed to explain their ideas to anybody. No, it hasn't really uh, resonated with them. They think it's the voters fault, not their fault. So therefore, they have to pander and condescend to the voters. And maybe calling white people, you know, uh, instant bigots because of the color of their skin, because they have white privilege, is not the best strategy in the world? Well, they don't think they've done anything wrong. Look, we're seeing this, and I mean, it does seem like an Onion headline. I've never seen it in politics, but it's happening. The Democrats, rather than saying, look, we made mistakes, you know, our messaging was wrong, they're blaming the voters for not being intelligent enough to vote for them. So to treat the voters like they're like they're vulgar idiots and just throw down, you know, profanities and well, that's, that's going to make them think. vote for you because they're too dumb to know any better. Well, Vicky, that's what they think. I mean, we hear Elizabeth Warren saying uh, in interviews that the reason that the Democrats lost was because voters are racist and they have to be reeducated. Well, this is this is how they are showing their respect for the people they already despise. Here's my question. Why then does it seem like the Republicans could not sell an idea, 
you know, to somebody desperate for one. Why then are the Republicans still not able to handle a simple explanation of how, assuming that the law will even advance to the Senate, which it won't, but how this this uh, this new health care law doesn't kick people with pre-existing conditions off their coverage. They can't even get that done. And now you got Democrats in rooms swearing at people and the Republicans can't seem to, you know, to, to buy an idea that's worth that, that they can sell effectively. But, Vicki, that's always been the Republicans problem. Communications. Look, you have a Ronald Reagan, a Donald Trump who can resonate with voters, communicate with them. But for the most part, Republicans cannot sell their ideas. They don't re- get how to sell it, how to reach the, uh, the voters. This was the problem with the Gingrich Revolution. We're seeing it right here and now with this current Congress. Right, greater this policy, but then sale. It, you're right. Great, they're they're terrific on policy white papers. They're good at winning elections. The Republicans are good at winning elections. Look what they've done in state houses. But then when it comes to governing and you say, okay, you got a mandate, you won the elections, you know, in in the House of Representatives, you won on repeal Obamacare, can't repeal Obamacare. You know, the the Republicans in whatever state house won on this set of principles when it comes time to actually advance those principles. Where are they? We had we had a couple of really good big ideas in Wisconsin. And now we're kind of just kicking the can a little bit. And and so, again, I ask, you know, what do the Republicans have to do to actually become a animated party of ideas? Um, because that's ultimately what's going to result in in long term um, in a long term fix of the republic. They need to remember the ideas they campaigned on and continue to communicate the way they campaigned. Well, maybe the Republicans think the voters scared, are stupid too, and not get scared, but with the media. See, they let the media scare them. The media talks about you know this backlash that's going on, the nonstop pounding of the Trump administration, and they fall into. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To the trap, we saw it happen with Nixon administration, even with Ronald Reagan with Iran Contra. The minute the media began going after Reagan, they were ready to ditch him. It happens all the time. We fall into the trap that the media wants to convey that this opposition is so great when it isn't. Republicans forget. They're the ones who won the elections, not the media and not the media supported Democrats. I'll tell you, and you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right on that. And they, no matter how many different ways you can show them how, when they ignore what the media, which of course is just part and parcel of the of the mouthpiece of the Democratic Party, when you ignore what they're saying and you simply govern as you have campaigned, people reward you by sending you back over and over again. Um, if you know, if if this had driven the Republicans in Wisconsin during the up, Act Ten uprising, and believe me, lots of them wanted to crawl into a closet. And not have to vote on this legislation, then if, if we wouldn't have had anything substantially changing in Wisconsin except simply having a Republican instead of a Democrat as governor. But because they embraced that, things were fundamentally altered in our state. Now ask him to do it another time. They don't want to do it. Exactly. But I mean, if you look at it, look, Scott Walker in Wisconsin, Rick Scott in uh, Florida, both of these guys were supposed to be gone, according to the media, even in 2014. There was no way they could win. 
the media wanted to set up this narrative that both were going to go down to the Democrats. And look what happened. It's if Republicans govern as Republicans, no matter what the media says, they'll get reelected. Well, I agree. If they govern as Republicans and don't find ways to lose on issues that they could that they know everybody knows they can win on. Um, the left has gone back to a confrontational style as well. They they started it in earnest in Wisconsin. They turned it into um, a much more sort of virulent, vicious um, strategy tactic rather in Occupy Wall Street than Ferguson and Black Lives Matter. Well, now it's back. It hasn't helped them. But what it effectively does do is it keeps people quiet and it makes people go away. And I think that's that's what the left is hoping for, is that if we can make the Republicans incapable of defending their own ideas, then people will assume, and maybe rightfully so, they don't have any. Well, it's fear and intimidation, and not only that, but look at the name that they've adopted. They're the resistance. Uh, Very much uh, like they're saying, you know, the resistance during World War II, and they're resisting the Nazis. And you hear this over and over again, that they're trying to paint anyone who's a conservative Anyone who supports Donald Trump or has a different view from theirs as the Nazi, and they have to be resist. I mean, we're seeing across the country, too, where you have some Democratic leaders pretty much coming close to advocating violence against conservatives. Oh, yeah. We had a a former county board supervisor ask why it would be unethical to kill rich people and steal their stuff. I mean, it's that bad. Down here, we have a city council member who's uh, instructing people on how to attack Nazis, and the Nazis, in his mind, or anyone who's a Republican. So this seems to me pretty simple to, to strategize against, and yet all we see are wheels spinning um, in Washington, D.C. You know, this is like, I've got the Russian hearings on today in my in my studio, and it's almost like the teacher in the Peanuts cartoons. I mean, all you're hearing is, want, want, want Russia. You know, I mean, it's so, I, I don't know what the Republicans are doing, but they, they're not governing um, they're not governing aggressively and on our own, and we're seeing this with John McCain. Uh, now that he's been reelected to the Senate, he is after the Trump administration every which way he can go. And yet, go. Trump, Trump is getting some stuff done. And I'm not, a, I'm not just a, grab the pom poms for for Donald Trump because some of the stuff he does makes me want to slam my head into a wall. Oh. But generally speaking, put the tweets aside, he's getting things done. He has begun the process of appointing um, judges to the appellate courts. And I'm hearing that we're going to have a nonstop, um, one confirmation after another after another. He has begun the regulatory rollback. He, I mean, for, for what he can do, and some of it's been ineffective, but a lot of it's been very effective. He's doing more than Congress has been doing. Exactly. But no one wants to give him credit, it seems. Well, the Republicans do want to give him credit, David. I would Some disagree did, with you on that. The ones who voted, uh, the, the sort of the rank and file, we the, the people plebes. I'm talking, your, uh, I'm talking your ones who are in power. Oh, no. Nobody wants to give him credit who are already in power in the, in the, in the realm of political power. But the, but the sort of we the people plebes kind of look at the two, it, you know, at Trump and his administrative team and Congress and say, okay, so who's getting it done for you right now? <laughs> and nobody's saying Congress. Oh, I agree. You know what I think the Republicans should start doing? Swearing at people. I think that'll help. <laughs> kidding. Definitely. Just kidding. Good to have you on the program, David Johnson right from Strategic Visions. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the program. I just I just became what I mocked today on Facebook, Joel. 
Oh, boy. What, what did you start posting? Well, there was a Wall Street Journal article. Like baby pictures or something? No, no, no. There was a Wall Street Journal article, and I put it up on my um, social media today, and it was about people buying pet food that looks like people food. Oh, no. Because, you know. Because, yeah, why not? Because, because. I don't know. Yeah, people convince themselves if it looks like people food, it's good for my pet or it's better for my pet. So I was kind of mocking people who did this because your dog doesn't care. So I just bought some freeze-dried turkey hearts for my dog. What? Yeah. Well, part of the reason was it was because it was Gracie's dog treats, and that's John Jagler's daughter. She's got her own um, dog treat company. Oh, that's cool. And she's very cute. And so the cute was working overtime on me. But then I'm picking through the dog treats, and of course I pick the dog treats that look like people food. Huh. And I buy my dog dog He's not going to... He wouldn't care if I gave him, you know, a handful of dog chow or old Roy. I don't want to say that you're quite the hypocrite, but uh kind of sounds like you're being a hypocrite here. A little here. bit of a hypocrite a on that bit. one. A little bit. A little bit. So I anyway. won't tell anybody if you don't nah, tell anybody. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> I do. I mean, I've, it's for a good cause, though. So okay. I want to help out Gracie, Gracie Jagler, who has um, got a very successful little company selling very high-end, high-quality, um, all-natural ingredient dog treats. And I would recommend the turkey hearts because they look the most delicious. Any cat treats in there for my, I, my Gino and Petra? Oh, I don't know. I didn't look for cat treats, man. I'll, so I'll I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to look. All right. Um, anyway, uh, so I want to talk about some very common sense things that states can do to assist in immigration law enforcement. It, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here, folks. You just have to not do what um, places like, you know, California do. Um, and that is create an entire sanctuary situation in your whole state. Texas just announced the passage of their anti-sanctuary law. And one could argue, why is it necessary? It's necessary because states and cities within states decide they want to nullify, effectively nullify federal immigration law. Um, we've got a proposal for something like that in Wisconsin, but... It hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't moved anywhere. Um, But that is one thing that states can do to begin the process of getting their arms around part of the problem. Ira Melman for Federation for American Immigration Reform is on the phone with me right now. This is real. It's kind of basic stuff, Ira. It doesn't seem like it should be necessary. But if cities within a state are going to behave as if federal immigration law doesn't apply for them, or think Madison or Milwaukee and Wisconsin are actually setting aside dollars to help illegal aliens fight deportation procedures, then it does make sense for states to pass these laws. Yeah, uh, you know, just while you were giving the introduction, I kind of thought of a slogan here. Just the, the slogan ought to be, don't do what California does. Right. You know, they, whatever it, California you know, does, do the opposite. Yeah, whatever California does, just do the opposite, because that'll probably be the right thing to do. Uh, it kind of simplifies government. Uh, but you're right. Uh, you know, the Governor Abbott in Texas signed a bill yesterday that made it clear to local governments around the state of Texas that if you implement sanctuary policies, not only are you going to lose state funding uh, for certain programs, but it could cost your jurisdiction up to $25,000 a day in fines. Uh, local officials 
uh, can be held accountable for these policies, including uh, sheriffs and, and police chiefs who could potentially face misdemeanor charges, punishable up to a year in jail. Uh, you know, this has some teeth. Uh, you know, Governor Abbott did this. He took part of his Sunday out uh, to do this. You know, I suspect that was to make a point. It was important enough to him to come to the Capitol on a Sunday. Uh, he live-streamed it on Facebook. Uh, this was a message not just to the local jurisdictions in Texas, but I think he was sending a signal to other jurisdictions around the country, basically don't do what California is doing, uh, you know, that – People in these communities want the laws enforced. It is there to protect their interests. And, you know, I think he's absolutely right. You know, maybe even more astonishing, uh, there's a story in today's New York Times talking about how Maryland defeated uh, sanctuary proposals. In solid blue Maryland, uh, you know, the, the public came out against it, led by people who had come to the United States legally. Legal immigrants said, no, these, these kinds of policies are crazy. So, you know, maybe some sanity is catching on. You know, the other thing is, is that actually you start looking at the numbers and you guys at Federation for American Immigration Reform have have helpfully sort of condensed the numbers so people can understand this. We have already an enormous um, population of immigrants in the country. Uh, about 25 percent of the of the 45 million people who are immigrants in this country are in the country illegally. And of that percentage in the country illegally and even a substantial percentage of them in the country legally, you're talking about folks who are not here in a merit based system and don't have, you know, are not highly educated, are not here because they're filling needs or gaps in the workforce. I mean, you're looking at numbers that say we have got our immigration policy exactly backward. We're not helping people into the United States because they're also going to, by extension, help the United States. We're just simply our our policy seems to be none whatsoever. Just come as you are and come if you can. Right. I mean, if we have a policy at all, it it is nepotism. Uh, You know, once somebody gets to the country, then they can decide who's coming next. And, you know, while we may have wanted you, we may not necessarily want your no good brother-in-law, but we're going to get stuck with him anyway under the current policy. So, you know, the president proposed back in his uh, address to Congress in February that we move to a merit-based system, that we look at the people who are applying to come to the United States as immigrants and say, gee, what can the people who are applying do for us? You know, this is a public policy. It is supposed to serve a public interest. Uh, Let's set, set up some system uh, by which we can objectively determine who is most likely to contribute and succeed in this country and select those people. And quite frankly, that's the way a lot of countries do it. Uh, you know, Canada has a policy similar to that. Australia does. Uh, you know, they view their policies as public policies are supposed to serve some kind of identifiable interest. We apparently don't. No. And, and, I'm looking know, at the numbers. We don't at all. We have 7.5 percent of, of immigrants that are chosen to come into the country are chosen based on their talent, their skill or their education. Merit based. Only not even 10 percent. Most people, it's, again, it's a come as you are and come if you can kind of thing. Right. And we shouldn't be surprised to find that more than 50 percent of immigrant-headed households are relying on some form of welfare. Uh, You know, when you select people who 
simply don't have the skills that are compatible with the needs of our economy in the 21st century, what you're going to wind up with is a lot of dependency on government services. Um, but, you know, the, in Washington, that's the way it is. We've built a constituency for that, and it's hard to get them to change even a policy that is so demonstrably bad uh, that anybody could recognize it. Yeah, and that's the problem. If we had just simply said, I mean, even even not doing a merit-based system, okay, we're, we're, we're here because... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As you know, we're bringing you in because you have something that you're going to offer up this employee or something. But just to simply say you have to have, uh, you know, an education that is equivalent to high school because of the problem of a huge number of households utilizing various types of social services, either um, directly through the use of, of identification manipulation, ID fraud, or because their kids allow them access to these services. That's something we should be discouraging. I mean, and just I think simply saying you need to have um, a high school education to get into the country in the first place doesn't seem like it's that that too too dramatic or too harsh a stretch. It's not too harsh. And, you know, we might even think about setting the bar a little bit higher. I mean, as we know, uh, it takes more than a high school diploma in this country to succeed anymore. You know, this isn't 1920 where you could go to work uh, at the factory and, you know, turn screws all day and make a middle class living. Those days are gone. You require special skills. Uh, we have, you know, a lot of the people that we're bringing in simply duplicate the skills of people who are already here. Uh, and these are people who are already struggling to make ends meet. Uh, this just sets them farther behind because, like anything else, you know, if you create an overabundance of people with certain skills, the price of their labor is going to go down. It's just going to make everybody more dependent. So we've got to start looking at this as though it is a public policy, which it is. Uh, all other public policies are at least theoretically formulated in the interest of the country. This one, you know, the exact opposite right. is true. We, we and, simply- and so end nepotism employs some sort of, you know, modest requirements before you can come in. Um, because, you know, uh, dealing with illegal, illegal immigration is something that um, has proven to be not nearly as difficult, I think, as a lot of people thought it was. And that is just giving a signal that we are going to start cracking down on people coming into the country illegally. It seems like our biggest challenge is going to be legal immigration, which, as you describe, um, is kind of nepotism based, is that you want to come into the country, but then you can bring your cousin and your friend and your sister and your kids and and that kind of thing that, you know, a, a rational change there, I think, allows us to begin to get our hands around what really, you know, what we need to do and how much money we're going to actually have to be expending to take care of people coming into the United States. Yeah. And there's actually a bill that was introduced earlier this year by Senator Tom Cotton and Senator David Perdue, uh, they, you know, to make it a more merit-based system to eliminate a lot of the extended family uh, entitlement 
benefits that that come with immigration. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell has kind of buried this someplace, and you know, hopefully somebody will find it and dig it up. Uh, but you know, there is good legislation out there. It will take some leadership on the part of the uh, people who are supposed to be leading Congress to get it moving. Uh, but you know, I suspect there would be a lot of public support for this. Uh, you know, if you ask people, should we be taking people who are going to be net contributors, or should we be taking people fifty percent of whom are likely to wind up on welfare? I guarantee you the public is going to say, let's take people based on what they can contribute. The annual cost right now, uh, and I'm not even looking at at legal immigrants who are, um, you know, at, at that so, such a low end of the labor scale that they are actually um, net costs as well. But the annual cost of illegal immigration in the United States has been calculated at over $100 billion a year. That is a huge amount of money. Um, and when you start piling in, you know, the local impacts, because now you're setting aside, you know, assistance in schools, free and reduced lunch programs, English as second language training, um, you know, things like this. Now you're I mean, the, the, the money starts piling up. And if you start adding in legal immigrants who are not net contributors, legal now, I'm saying people with visas who are not net contributors, then you're probably seeing an enormously high cost to maintain what is this facade of, of benevolence in the United States, because it is a facade. In the end, it's costing people resources, it's costing people safety, it's costing people quality of life. Exactly. I mean, while we're being benevolent to people from other countries, and let's face it, I mean, it's always in the interest of immigrants to immigrate. They wouldn't be here. Uh, we are not being benevolent to a lot of people in this country, namely the people who have to compete with for jobs uh, with those folks, the people whose kids are in classrooms where half the kids don't speak English, uh, the people who have to compete for limited public services that are available out there. All those people are paying the price to make, you know, a few elites feel good. Exactly. But it's not about making elites feel good. I think about over time, it's about changing the, the composition of the electorate for those elites. Uh, some of the elites, it makes them feel good. Some of the elites like the fact that we can import cheap labor. Um, but the, we probably still would always be importing cheap labor into the United States, um, even with some of these changes. But in the end, it's, it, it, it fundamentally alters the electorate in the minds of the people who promote this the most vociferously. And that, of course, are the liberals and the Democrats, because they don't want assimilation. This would be entirely different, Ira, if this were uh, if all of our immigration was an assimilated immigration. If it wasn't about, you know, having to protect people and, and, and making sure they never have to learn the language, making sure we roll out a, an array of social service benefits. If this was sink or swim, if this was learn English, get a job, assimilate into this country, we probably wouldn't be on the, on the air right now talking about it. But that's the exact opposite of what we demand. We don't even demand people come into the country and learn the language. So that's, you know, that's fine. The Democrats are fine with that because that can over time fundamentally alter the way people view America itself. Yeah, and that has been part of the Democratic Party strategy for, you know, at least the past 10 years or so. Uh, you know, they recognize that over the long term, this would benefit them. Uh, you know, I think Hillary was very surprised when it didn't work for her this time. Uh, you know, I, part of it had to do with her and her high negatives. Uh, but, you know, that they have succeeded in other elections uh, based on that strategy. Uh, what is amazing to me is that the Republicans seem to fall for it every time. Uh, you know, you get, they introduce an amnesty bill and you'll have John McCain and Lindsey Graham out there saying, yeah, you know, we got to do this because, you know, somehow we think that people who are on welfare are going to vote for Republicans. It, it, it's I can't quite figure out what their logic is, but they seem to buy it. 
Nobody can. <laughs> and you know, the only conclusion is very rude. So good to have you on the program, Ira. Thanks very much for being on the show today. Thank you. Ira Melman from Federation for American Immigration Reform. We'll be right back. Coming up, we are going to talk about the dramatically changing media landscape. But you're telling me, Joel, you have um, you've got some mad skills at computer building. Oh, I have no skills, but I bought. You, you have no skills, but you're going to build a computer. Yep, I bought all the components. They should be coming in the mail this week at some point, and then I'm going to attempt to build my own computer by myself. Yeah. Good luck to you. On I know. That. Good luck need, to you. On I'm going to need a lot of. Why it. not though? You I mean DIY your own computer? You want to become a PC gamer? Yeah, I'm joining the PC master race. That's the that's the joke. Apparently, PC gamers don't like console gamers. Who knew? Really? This is a thing. Yeah. This is a thing. So it's the PC master race. So you tell me how hard it is to build your own computer. I, okay? oh, I will. I'll give you updates. You tell me. You think you have less skill than I have in this regard? Uh, probably pretty close. You tell me, because I might be inclined to try this little DIY project myself, my friend. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll come back and talk about the rapidly changing media landscape and how it has altered people's perceptions of politics. I'll be right back. The views expressed on the following program are not necessarily the views of WIBA, its management sponsors or staff. Broadcasting live from Planet Madison, where everything is beyond parody. This is the Vicki McKenna Show. To be a part of the program, in Madison, call 321-1310. Statewide, call toll-free at 877-235-1310. Or email vicki at wiba.com. Now, here's Vicki McKenna. Welcome back. Uh... Two PC gamers in my inbox right now laughing in my inbox that uh, you use the phrase PC master race when it's completely politically incorrect. And yet that's what the PC gamers do say. Yeah. yeah Even though they're not, they're not trying to suggest that they are Nazis. They are trying to suggest that PC gaming is superior to console gaming, correct? Yes, okay. yes. But uh, no, I'm glad that some people will recognize it. I mean, <laughs> like that is a real thing. They really do say that, and they really aren't Nazis. Just wanted to make Those... that abundantly clear, lest the easily microaggressed people who didn't get a trigger warning on that um, would complain. Yeah. Well, and you know, me being a guy with the last name of Finkelman, you know, I pretty I sure understand those things. Yeah, you're pretty sure you're not going to throw down with the um, the swastika wearing crowd. Not right? quite. Not quite. No. In case you guys didn't realize, that was uh, Joel saying that he was Jewish. Yes. To you on the air. Just wanted to make that abundantly clear. Now is that a macro? Lest no, I... the blogging begins, Joel. <laughs> Speaking of the blog, the blog, the blog has some wonderful things on it. Please check out the blog. Up on the blog is a link. Uh, well, it's a, it's a post that I put up that's sort of a companion link to what I did over the weekend at an event called Midwest Security Conference, which was fascinating. It was just one of those things where, and I had to leave about three quarters of the way through, so I didn't get to hear the very last uh, presentation by an amazing woman named Claire Lopez from Center for Security Policy. Um, but if you go to MidwestSecurity.org, you can learn more about, and I think you're going to be able to see all the presentations that were put up. But it it basically sort of walks you through how, in 2017, we got to a place in America 
where you had 500,000 women in National Mall cheering a Sharia supremacist woman claiming to be a feminist, somebody who supports all manner of evils visited upon women, standing before 500,000 women in National Mall and having them all cheer her on as some kind of free-thinking feminist. Um, it basically tries to explain what, what's, um, I guess, commonly referred to as the red-green axis or people who are supportive of democratic socialism or socialism and uh, Islamofascism. Why do those two, how do those two groups uh, seem to find common cause. And how did it result in this country um, embracing calls for <sighs> calls for um, tolerance, even 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 enthusiastic cheerleading of uh, Sharia being practiced in the United States. It's just weird. Um, but there is a somewhat circuitous route to understand how that happened. It's just, uh, it does take some explanation, and that's what we did over the weekend on a beautiful day. About 120 or so people gathered in Milwaukee at Serb Hall, and listen to that. So, But on the blog is, I mean, I didn't have, I don't have much in the way of, a, of an intelligence service background like all of our speakers did, but I was there to try to help people sort of understand how you just simply apply the basic rules of propaganda, and in over time, you can actually get a whole bunch of people cheering against their own best interests, believing the exact opposite is what they're doing. These folks who showed up at National Mall didn't believe they were cheering the subjugation of women. They believed they were cheering the liberation of women. Some of them did. Some of them were there with a very deliberate agenda, but I think most people there thought they were there on behalf of the interests of women generally. So you need to go to the blog at WIBA.com slash Vicky and check out some of the awesome posts we've got up there, including that one. What else ahead? Well, we're going to talk about the changing media landscape and how perceptions are they're not as, as set in stone as you think they might be, simply because what has happened in media is social media. That's what's happened in media. Social media has so totally altered the way we consume information, the way we analyze information, the way we um, react to information. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I, I, I don't even know if media watchers realize the impact that it has had so far, but that's what we're going to get into next. I will be right back. The blog. Welcome back to the program. All right. And as I said before we went into this segment, this isn't stating anything alarming or or deeply insightful. But 
the media landscape is dramatically different than it was only 10 years ago. You have everything from the rise of blogs to the rise of online-only news services to social media totally, totally um, upending the elite's conception of how people consume, disseminate, react to, analyze information. Um, I I think that is um, probably a, a benign statement of what's going on. What you have as well is major, major people who are players in in the the information stream uh, realm bothered <laughs> by that. And so you have some very concerted efforts on behalf of some of those people to try to rein in sort of this wild west of information consumption we have going on, which, by the way, allowed someone like Donald Trump to be elected president of the United States or a Tea Party movement to come online uh, or or Scott Walker to survive a recall election because it had nothing to do with the traditional avenues of information. We're used to thinking about newspapers, uh, television and radio. It, a lot of it had to do with simply that people were free to pursue uh, the information stream on their own. If the left has their way, this is something they will try to find a way to rein in. And Seton Motley, who watches this closer than any Anybody I know from last government in red state is on the phone to talk about it. Good to have you back. Thank you, miss. How are you? I'm doing well. So you and I have talked a lot about net neutrality on the program, and it's not an explicit uh, content constraint. But the the reason why so many of the sort of big uh, information stream movers and shakers and players and dial twisters are interested in it is because it can ultimately become an information constraint if they have control of it. Yes. Uh, I wrote about it last week uh, when I wrote uh, Net Neutrality, Venezuela for the Internet. Um, one of the biggest proponents is a group called Free Press, ironically enough, uh, and they're making the argument that the that government getting out of the Internet is a free speech threat, which, of course, is just stupid. Um, and one of the, the, the co-founder of Free Press is a college professor and an avowed Marxist, please pardon the redundancy, named Robert McChesney. And he said of net neutrality, the ultimate objective of net neutrality is to eradicate the media capitalists from the phone and cable companies and divest them from control. Well, what does that mean? That's very Venezuela of him. What that means is they want no Internet service providers to be private. They want to eradicate them all and have government be our sole Internet service provider, at which point, what was a free market problem becomes a free speech problem. Because if government's your sole Internet service provider, we saw from the IRS scandal, did they go after left-wing groups? Of course not. They went after conservative groups and Tea Party groups, right-wing groups. And when government controls bandwidth, is Daily Coast and National Review going to get the same amount of bandwidth? I don't think so. And we have a track record to prove that the they probably wouldn't. Well, look at well, look at what the government management of of public radio or public television. Yeah, is that right. all you need Go, to do? Which I call government radio because that's that's what it is. Neil Bortz, a radio host who's since who's retired, had a great line. He said, "If you go to a Catholic school, you get a pro-Catholic education. If you go to an Episcopalian school, you get a pro-Episcopalian education. If you go to a government school, you get a pro-government education. And the same is true for government media." There's no how many there hasn't been a conservative on it on on corporation for public broadcasting since Bill Buckley firing line 25 years ago. 
So, you know, it's, it's, it's a left, you know, all these left-wing things. And by the way, now that we have cable and nine million channels, do we really need a government media station? That, I, that no, that's an aside. But, yeah, the answer is um, what? There's no competition. Right. But, but, uh, yes, and like you can't get the, the NPR fair on NBC, ABC, CBS, MSNBC. Like you couldn't get it before anyway. <laughs> the only the, channels that have been added now are a couple of conservative stations and nine million reality channels. But anyway. Um, yes, net neutrality's ultimate objective is to have government be your sole internet service provider, and then you got a free speech problem. Absolutely, because now you're and you're talking about who gets access to what amount of bandwidth. Right, um, right. Just like just like resources, just like taxpayer resources. Who right. gets access to the lion's share of taxpayer well, resources? I, had a, I have a friend of mine who's a city councilman in Austin, Texas, and my joke when I lived there was Austin's nice because it's so close to Texas, and and. He actually put forward at his at his city council a bill that said, "How about we fund some climate skeptics?" Because the Austin City Council has spent money for decades on climate research. Never once has a non-climate alarmist received a grant from the city of Austin, and and that's the way it is at the federal level too. How many you know how many climate realist scientists, how many house singers get money from the federal government in grants to research climatology? The answer would be zero. They fund people who want to who want to grow government, right? And and the, the, you know they they fund people whether it's government grants or government bandwidth or or any of these things. You know, it, government is an organism, and like any other organism, its first priority is to survival. And then its second priority is to grow. By the way, that's that's why it was so important when you saw the FCC announce the rollback of the Title II um, classification for the Internet. It's, not, it's, it's sort of green eyeshade stuff as that sounds. And dull, that was, that was the first step of the government taking control of access to the resource of bandwidth. Well, and not just – well, for, again, remember this is uh, – I, I always say this is a free market problem that quickly begets a free speech problem. What they were – what Title II was was an assault on, on the industry to affect an ideological outcome. There have been only three times in the history of the private sector Internet, which is 25 years, give or take, where you lost investment capital. Investment went down year to year. One was after 9-11. One was after the 2008 global economic crash, and one was the year after Title II was put in. So Title II reclassification of the Internet is the economic equivalent of a global terrorist attack and a global economic <laughs> meltdown. On the Internet. On yeah. the Internet. And, and so, so by rolling it back, even though it's not back yet because he's going through the whole rulemaking process, um, that's a signal to the industry, hey, it's okay to start investing again. Yeah, the idea again though was to once the government got control of the you know the, the spigot on mm-hmm. on how much information on how much you could use of bandwidth on on how much you were going to be able to control that was the beginning of the end of this. But there was it, what was interesting is that it, people didn't put this together very easily. Not many people put together how bandwidth connected to content and how the government's control of that of that faucet was going to ultimately result in less and less free information being exchanged between individuals. And again, I go back to what I started with, which which is 
the media landscape is so different today than it was five years ago. Five years ago, it was different than it was 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, it began to change from what it had been for a long, long time. And that is the minute people, individual citizens, got access to the ability to control content themselves that could go out globally is the moment things started to change. And and you'll never put the genie back in the bottle. This was an attempt by the left to put the information genie back in the bottle by giving the government the essentially the, the, the control of the spigot of the information itself. Right, right. And, 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 and again, that was the Title II really chokes down on the capital input, which right. chokes down on the, on the number of private Internet service providers getting to the point of, you know, going down eventually to zero and then we're to the government and, and, the, and going forward. Yes, this is, this is a, 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 a dual track. They've got to get the, they gotta, they gotta squeeze the free market out of the Internet before they can squeeze the free market. You, you can look at this anywhere. So you can look at what the squeeze on charity has been since welfare has expanded. You can look at the squeeze on uh, access to childhood vaccinations from private companies since government decided they were going to be the ones controlling all of that. Yep. I mean, anywhere you look, you can see examples of what happens when the government decides to set itself in place I'll, I'll of give you, market I'll give you forces. Quick example. How about health care? Well, well, that too, in college, college tuition. You know, I saw, I don't know if you saw that Vox published a a graph, and the price of everything has gone down relative to previous dollars, with the exception of two things, health care and college tuition. And college tuition has skyrocketed over health care. And what a surprise, it's the two things that government, quote unquote, helps you with the most. And and the, the, the last step was, as part of Obamacare, was, was the federal government nationalized all college loans. That was the last step. They, you know, they were so in control of it that to, to, to in part pay for Obamacare, they, they completely eradicated private college loans. And, and, and that's, the, that's the same thing. It, you know, it, it, I always, I, my joke is they want to repeal the private sector and replace it with government. Repeal and replace. Repeal and replace, only with government. Um, And that's what they were going to do, by the way, with the Internet. And they were going to say, oh, it shouldn't be okay for AT&T to charge people for using excess bandwidth. It shouldn't be okay for someone not to be able to stream unlimited amounts of information. Um, One of their their big mistakes was the, the wireless companies have been giving away free data. Unlimited free data on certain, you know, like Spotify and music, you know, Pandora and that kind of thing. And the net neutrality idiots came out against that. Now, I'm sorry, you don't look like the pro-consumer side if you're telling the, the phone companies you're violating net neutrality by giving them unlimited free data. Right. That, that, that was, I think, a hiccup in their plan. Yeah, that's because they, they so despise the actual companies that were being recipients of the free data treatment that they yeah they got they sort of got blinded by they, their they dis- got, by got, how much they, they despise right, capitalism right, 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 actual, true exactly one, yeah. so this looks like it's going to get rolled back but it doesn't mean that it's gone for good we know oh, that no. we've got and google and facebook and you know to put this to bed once and for all and of course there's no democrat that's going to work with anybody any republican on anything including this what does the legislation? What could the legislation look like that would essentially protect the freedom of of, well, of private there's, there's, access to the internet? There's been a messaging problem on our side because net neutrality, as originally proposed, was actually okay, and none of the companies had a problem with it. None of the internet service providers had a problem with it, and none of them were violating it. And that's, that that is, if it's legal content. 
we're not going to block you. You know, the, the, the big thing when Comcast and NBC merged was, oh, my God, they're going to block ABC and CBS.com and only let you go to NBC. Well, that never happened because that's stupid on the part of the, you know, of Comcast. They're in the customer service business. If they don't service the customer, they're not going to be in business. So you could, in Scotts and law, these, these, there's four principles. And you, you, they're very simple. They're very, and nobody violates them. If you pass a law with that in it, and get rid of all this Title II crap and all this encroachment by government crap. You could you, you could make this go away and proscribe in the legislation, hey, the FCC can't do X, Y, and Z. Well, then you'd solve it. But, of course, the left is never going to allow that. Yeah, because we were literally, had there been a different president, it is, it is absolutely a sure thing that at some point in our lifetimes, the government would be the one. You would have, your only internet service provider would have been your government. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Government. Exactly It right. would have been an absolute certainty in our lifetimes that that would have been true. And when government's your internet service provider, yeah, imagine the kind of mischief that would take place uh, with regard to access you, to information when the internet is all about information. In, when you get in commerce. your daily allotment of government broadband. Indeed. Good to have you on the program. Thank you so much, Seton Motley. Redstate.com is where you can find Seton's latest. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Miss. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Joel and I were just talking about Roombas. Why were we talking about Roombas? Because you mispronounced Rumba as Roomba. Well, I had to ask and make sure it was Roomba. Or sorry, Rumba. Rumba That's a dance. Roomba is the thing that vacuums your floor. Very similar. But then for some reason we were just talking about the lawn Roombas, whatever those things are called. I saw one over at Homesteader's store. They were this incredible thing. They mow your lawn for you. A robot that mows your lawn for you. Yeah, it's you know it's funny because I I kind of enjoy mowing my lawn. So. See, I don't have to mow my lawn anymore, so I don't mind. But um, I don't have a big enough lawn to ever justify something oh, like same that. Same here. Yeah. But if you had a big lawn, how awesome would it be to send out the lawn Roomba to set it and forget it? Yeah, that's some infomercial. What that is- would be awesome to just to be able to never have to you know, and then have and I think from what I remember. Uh, the guy at the Homesteader store was telling me you can set it and, and you can have it mow that beautiful pattern. Ooh. That diagonal. How do you do that? I I have no idea. You, you just really, you have to just spend extra time, right, to get that diagonal pattern? Yeah, I'm kind God, of God, that looks beautiful. I hate people who do that. Exactly. I'm more the guy who just kind of, just get it done. Just get then, it done. Then you're good to go. The diagonal pattern, though, looks so beautiful. Yeah, it, it really does. <laughs> the people who do that in their lawns make me want to smack them. Um, but they also make me incredibly jealous. Anyway, that's what we were on the topic of dance. Ballroom dance turns into a conversation about lawn mowing robots. Bizarre. Uh, our off, uh, off-air conversations generally you. turn into weird things. It's so true. This it's is true. probably one of the more normal ones we have. Well, actually, you're right. It is. It's actually <laughs> one of the least um, 
Where do they where do they get that? Yeah, and one of the more arable ones that we true, have, so. true. It's true, Joel. You're exactly correct. I want to talk about the in- insane hyperbole that has accompanied the health care law that was passed by the Republicans last week. Um, nothing's tethered to reality. Beginning with this piece of legislation being the piece of legislation that ultimately is going to be the law on health care. I mean, it, be- it begins by being baloney. The law that came out of the, the House of Representatives will not even be taken up in the United States Senate. That's the House bill. The United States Senate is crafting their own. You heard Ron Johnson on this program last week say explicitly that. It will be different. So to obsess over the Republican House law is it's an exercise in futility. But on the Republican law coming out of the U.S. House of Representatives, there are a whole bunch of other things that are just a lie about it. Number one, it doesn't repeal Obamacare. Number two, it doesn't replace Obamacare. Those are two kind of big things about it. It alters Obamacare. That's what it does. It takes the basic structures of Obamacare and it alters some elements of those structures to attempt to make the healthcare marketplace function more efficiently. Not, not super efficiently, just more efficiently than it is right now. Right now, the individual marketplace is pretty much obliterated because of Obamacare. We just had an insurer announce, the last insurer announced they were pulling out of the Iowa exchanges. Um, multiple states have nothing left as far as insurance providers covering people in the individual insurance marketplace. Costs have exploded for people. Deductibles are unmeetable burdens. People who have these policies under Obamacare, um, many of them can't use the policies simply because of the cost of the deductibles. You'll, it is not unreasonable to expect to pay a lot for health insurance, by the way, under penalty of law, under, under the Obamacare law, under penalty of law, and have a deductible that you have to meet before your insurance kicks in. So the idea that the Democrats have no responsibility for utterly destroying the individual insurance marketplace is absurd. And then on top of that, claiming that the Republican health care law is going to kill people. Kill people. The let me let me go over some of the um, the lunacy of this because it it honestly is the the best advice I can give to you is to ignore the the mess. The best advice I can give to the Republicans is to ignore this garbage. It is pure, made from scratch crap. On pre-existing conditions, I have read, I actually read over the weekend, a screed, and I want to say the screed was on, somebody sent me a link, I don't know if it, was, if it was Huffington Post or Daily Coast, about how Republicans are making being female a pre-existing condition and then kicking women off health care. 
I, I, you, it's almost, it, it's one of those things so absurd, you almost feel like you shouldn't have to explain why that's crap, except that we know from experience in Wisconsin that if you don't counter the garbage, it will stick. Like when they were accusing Scott Walker of trying to privatize the deer hunt or, or get rid of excellent teachers or gut education with Act 10. None of that was true. But if you didn't counter it, those, those um, allegations could stick. So here's the latest. Republicans are going to kill people kicking them off their insurance coverage, and women are now a pre-existing condition. Let me tell you what the Republican House law does, which will change, if, if not entirely, at least substantially, by the time it gets to the sausage-making of the United States Senate. All the law did was set aside dollars so states that didn't have functioning individual insurance markets could apply for waivers to set up high-risk insurance pools so that people with pre-existing conditions could have access to insurance products they could purchase. Yeah, that's what it was. It was saying, come back into our state insurance providers We are going to make it so that you can actually sell products here and not go out of business doing it by allowing you to have access to a high-risk insurance pool system that will permit you to actually base people's costs on how sick they are, at the same time giving those sick people access to very, very affordable coverage that will bring down their costs, but at the same time bring down insurance companies' costs. Why would you want that? Why would you want that? I don't know why you'd want that. Probably because everybody wants that. But the left has turned that into kicking people off their insurance and making women a pre-existing condition. Where does this come from? Because in the past... Women with high use of medical procedures were charged, not much, but nominally more than men. That's where, that's where they get that. It doesn't mean that's what the Republican plan mandated or even permitted, but that's where they get that. And they've just extrapolated upon that to claim that a high-risk insurance pool, which, by the way, functioned extremely well in Wisconsin, is functioning right now dramatically well in states like Maine and Alaska that saw their entire individual insurance markets collapse rapidly. That's all the Republican law permitted was for states to apply for waivers to the conditions that ran insurance companies and insurance products out of their state in the first place to allow those insurance providers to come back in with those products in a way that does not basically force them to endure a bankruptcy in the process. But the way... The Democrats are telling it you would swear people are going to be dropping dead in the streets. That is just absurd. Everything you're hearing about Obamacare and the replacement or or the tweak of Obamacare that is coming from the left at this point is pretty much just 100 percent garbage. Everything from the number of uninsured people predicted by the left under the Republican plan, which is, again, a made up number to the fact that. They're trying to scare people into thinking they're going to lose their insurance coverage. They're not. 
uh, or that women are suddenly going to be desi- designated pre-existing conditions. All of that's garbage. It's garbage. The one thing the right does really, really well is raise money and win elections. The one thing the right does really, really poorly is make sure people understand the policies it supports. And the one thing the Republicans did abysmally poorly is not even bother to try to explain the elements of what were contained in this House bill or explain that once they were done with it, it was going to go over to the Senate where it wasn't going to look anything like the House bill when it came out the other side. I'll be right back. Cha-cha. Oh, this isn't a rumba? It could also be a rumba, but you can make... But it's got enough of the fast beat, you can make it a cha-cha. Let me try to do a rumba with this. Vicky is dancing in studio at the moment, so, you know. You're you could do a rumba do to it. You yeah, could, yeah. You could do a rumba? Okay. You know, Hysteria by Def Leppard yeah? is a rumba. I'll have to grab that. <laughs> really? Yes. Really? Yes. It I is. if I keep saying really, maybe it'll really? change. Really? Really? Um, really. All right. Uh, yes. I love ballroom dance, by the way. It's super fun. Okay. I enjoy it immensely. And, uh, and yeah, so it was Foxtrot on Friday. Foxtrot. Oh, Foxtrot Friday. I get it. It's it was like Foxtrot. On, yeah. No, it wasn't. It was just that was what we oh. had to perform was the Foxtrot. Oh, okay. Which I do love, but, uh, but I goofed up my part of it. So anyway. Well, way to go. I know. I Jeez. screwed up, boy. Um, back to Obamacare. Okay. Back to Obamacare. Um, I just saw this on the Blaze. It is a, it's an effort. It's it's not even an effort. It's a, it's a it's a political organizing website that is telling people to sign a petition that will have their ashes mailed to Republicans when they die because of the modest changes that have been made to the Obamacare law. I'm totally serious. There are, um, in fact, over the weekend, this was either Friday or Saturday, uh, members of the student body of the University of Wisconsin were hoodwinked into participating in a die-in. Imagine that again, a die-in. Remember when Scott Walker uh, proposed Act 10? There was a die-in. And then Scott Walker didn't take the Medicaid expansion. There was a die-in. And when Scott Walker proposed uh, the litigation reform in Wisconsin, there was a die-in. Well, now there's a die-in because of the modest changes the House Republicans made to Obamacare. Significant, but still. Not a repeal, not a replace of Obamacare, and you've got this hyperbole. Why are the Republicans so bad at countering the hyperbole? And and furthermore, why do they think they don't ever need to say anything about it? When, when the Act 10 uprisings were going on in Wisconsin, you could not find, with the exception of maybe somebody like Steve Noss, you couldn't find more than a handful of elected Republicans who wanted to push back against the insane hyperbole and, and lies that were being peddled to try to stop the legislature from going forward on Act 10. And the same, it appears, is mostly true about this House health care bill. 
Is it you don't nobody's standing up and saying, wait a second. With the, I should say notable exception, Kathy McMorris Rogers, who has a daughter with Down syndrome, who wrote an article to The Washington Post that defended the, the changes to pre-existing conditions as being better for people like her and her daughter. But, of course, it went through the um, the approval process of, you know, Republican leadership. And so it came out the other side pretty bland. But the Republicans do a very bad job of countering the hyperbole, of countering the insane rhetoric. They do a very bad job once they've been successful in letting people know why things are going well. Here's something that has worked in our state. Act 10. Without question, Act 10 has been a smoking success. It has been an amazing success. Five billion dollars and counting on taxpayer savings. Five billion dollars. And you didn't see public employees being fired on mass. You didn't see the number of teachers teaching students in public schools dramatically declining. You saw the number of class segments increasing, the number of class minutes going up. You saw recruitment for Wisconsin teachers stay the same. And yet, after the smashing success of Act 10, nobody's talking about Act 10. Nobody's saying, you want to know why Wisconsin was able to generate a budget surplus? Was because of the the changes Republicans made in policy that made Wisconsin a safe safe space for doing business, which increased the amount of revenue because we had more economic activity here, which allowed us to generate budget surpluses not to be sucked up by an increased cost of government. Once they were done with Act 10, once they were done with the regulatory changes, they just sort of walked on to the next thing and never bothered to let people know why things got better. This is the Republicans' biggest problem. They can win elections. There's a, there's a piece in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel today about um, this boogeyman piece about, oh my gosh, the, the Bradley Foundation giving money to these conservative groups. Well, of course Conservative organizations give money to conservative organizations to affect conservative policy, right? That makes sense. Liberals do it, too. But as I was looking through that, I said, yeah, you know, we do things really well. We 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 win elections. We um, you know, we do do that. Sometimes we cough up really good policy. You know, what we do. That's really bad. We never tell people why. This stuff works and why it is working and why it will continue to work. No wonder the left is so easily able to hyperbolize the stuff we believe in. We'll be right back. The views expressed on the following program are not necessarily the views of WIBA, its management sponsors or staff. Broadcasting live from Planet Madison, where everything is beyond parody. This is the Vicki McKenna Show. To be a part of the program, in Madison, call 321-1310. Statewide, call toll-free at 877-235-1310. Or email vicki at wiba.com. Now, here's Vicki McKenna. Welcome back to the program. I'm looking at an article here, warning... Of another ice age. It's back. 
the Ice Age, the mini Ice Age. It's back. Who's peddling the idea of the mini Ice Age? Why the same people who are peddling the threat of global warming? Looks like tomorrow I'll be shoveling 10 feet of global warming. Officially, the I mean, rational people would say, okay, your science is busted. You can't have record high temperatures caused by carbon dioxide and record low temperatures caused by carbon dioxide using the models, the global warming, or shall we call them climate change enthusiasts, are promoting. It either has to go up or down. Temperatures have to go up or down. Okay? So now they're saying, "Uh uh-oh, we've had record cold temperatures. It must be global warming. Mm-hmm. Okay. That just makes it unscientific to say one thing explains the theory of everything explains everything because it's untestable. If you can't test something, you can't call it science. Just so you know, it's untestable. Well, droughts are global warming and rainfall is global warming. In the exact same location, mind you, freezing cold temperatures and hot temperatures. Well, now it looks like we're not worried about warming, folks. Now it looks like the same people who told us to be worried about warming are now telling us to be worried about cooling. Same prescription. Wait a second. Warming was the reason why we were going to have massive increases in sea level. Not cold, warm. That's why we were going to have massive massive increases in sea level. That's why economies were going to be destroyed. That's why Manhattan was going to be underwater because of warming. So now that we have cooling to contend with, does that mean that we are that our, our economies are going to be fine? And they would say no. The the same exact problem is going to befall people if, in fact, things the temperatures get cooler. Well, really, how are sea levels going to rise if temperatures get cooler? Well, just trust us; they're going to rise. Really, this is um, this is what we have to contend with now. But uh, if you want to go take a look at this. At climatedepot.com is where you can find it. Um, This is actually in the London Telegraph, this story. And this story is making the argument we're just supposed to listen to the exact same experts who five years ago told us that it was heat we were supposed to be worried about, not cooling we were supposed to be worried about. If you're among the group of people who say, you know, maybe... We should just wait and see exactly what's going to happen until we develop ways of understanding climate that are a fair bit more accurate than, th- than having a person who can't throw darts throw a dart at a dartboard and asking us to spend trillions of dollars on that, on that dart. Um, you might want to start speaking up right now. Okay. That's what we're doing at this point. We're just throwing stuff at the wall. We don't know enough. We don't know how much water vapor plays into temperature. We don't know. We have no idea how much carbon dioxide plays into temperature. We don't have any idea. You have to manipulate the carbon dioxide sensitivity in the model to see if you can get something close to right. And no matter where you put the carbon dioxide sensitivity, you're way off. So we have no idea 
how much carbon dioxide contributes to temperature. We have no idea how much natural variability there is to any of this. We have no idea what our overall global impact is of settlement and development. We don't know the impacts of land use. We don't know if there is any impact, any certainly any impact that we need to guard against. We don't have those answers. Saying that, apparently, uh, gets you labeled a heretic. That, by the way, doesn't deny science. That doesn't deny the possibility that we will, in the future, develop ways to actually understand how a very, very complicated system like climate actually works and our individual impact on it. But it may be that if we do ever develop the the tools to understand that, the best we're going to be able to do is create conditions that protect us from some sort of change that may happen in the future. Not, not try to reverse it. What you've got the left doing right now is in the name of this potential catastrophe, either warming or cooling, telling us to, no matter what the catastrophe, the answer is always the same. Sacrifice your economy. Sacrifice your economic output. Sacrifice your liberty. Sacrifice your, your, in, your, financial independence and do what we, the people who have been manipulating you on this issue for the last 20 years, tell you to do in the name of our own ideology. Be right back. Alrighty, welcome back to the program. So, so now everything is global warming. Everything is climate change. Everything from freezing cold to, to hot, drought to 100-year rainfall, snow to no snow. I mean, you name it. It's global warming. And now, of course, with the latest news that the same environmentalists who told us to gird our loins against rapidly increasing temperatures and sea level rises are now telling us that the exact same prescription is required, only the temperatures are going to be really, really cold and and we're not going to have to worry so much about that sea level rise, but we're still going to have to sacrifice our economy. Um, again, proving this isn't science, this is just politics. Chris Horner is a senior legal fellow um, on the phone with me right now with the Energy and Environment Legal Institute talking about it's high time for the Trump administration to fish or cut bait on this Paris climate agreement because, Chris... There's a story out now that says warming cold, cold and warming, all the same thing, and we need to sacrifice trillion dollars of our economic output to manage it. That's right. But the, the, the footnote that they don't tell you is that they show you the computer model uh, horrors of your future if you don't agree to their agenda. They don't tell you, but there is an actual consensus on this, is that's the same projected computer model horror of your future if you do accept the agenda. The dirty secret is, and this is why we keep getting further and further down the road and the rabbit hole and more and more treaties, and, and even though they're each sold as salvation, none of them ever proposed would detectably impact, that is measurably, impact the climate, even if you accept all of their assumptions just for sake of argument, which is not a rational thing to do since the computer models have been proved to be tuned to, to provide these lurid projections to be very sensitive to to, to man's contribution, marginal contribution of greenhouse gases. So um, it's, you can leave the world a poorer place to deal with what it always is going to face and always has, often severe, always unpredictable weather, or you can leave it a richer place. And that's where the conversation always comes down. But what if you're wrong? 
well, then I left the world a richer place. Do you want more Florida or more Bangladesh? Well, and here's the thing. Because this Paris Treaty won't impact the climate. If Nobody you're wrong... If you're wrong, more people will have more access to economic output that will allow them to, you know, build better buildings, um, you know, create safer structures. If you're wrong, that's what you will have allowed. If they're wrong, then then nobody will be able to use economic output to do those things to enhance quality of life. And the weather and the climate is still going to be. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Be horrible. So, do you want people to be safer and live longer or not? It's going to be dangerous. Climate is very dangerous. Um, the wealthiest societies have adapted best. The, the societies that burn witches in response to climate change, which always happens, and there's always some panic response. And yes, that's what the witch burning say, and the little ice age were prompted by. Uh, the crops scared the babies dead, which next door must have done it. And we're talking about, look, when the same storm occurs, and it's the same storm, it appears in Florida and Bangladesh, it's used then. Because, and they're not outside of historical variability. I mean, it, you, we're going in cycles. You know that all the all the hurricanes that we were promised after the committee truth that because of 2005 we didn't listen. The future is here. What happened? The future never came. And that's, if it's not when the storms come back and they're cyclical, even a marginal change in our resilience makes it can leave a terrible human cost. Remember the the Paris heat wave. Heat waves happen. In a, in a very wealthy country, but had priced not just the $130 air conditioning unit, but the ability to pay for it. They had priced this out of the reach of seniors. So when the French were at the beach in August, you had 20,000 dying from a heat wave because they had, they had made it such that they weren't prepared for weather. We, we adapt in the wealthiest societies adapt. Yeah. Right. And so even a marginal change, you're going to kill a lot of people. And you won't, you know, you can't create a safe world, but you can kill millions of times. Well, and in the Paris heat waves that you were just talking about, that was, um, what, five, six years ago? That wasn't that long ago. We are talking about the very, very, very recent past. And something that we take for granted in the United States was unavailable to people, senior citizens, in in Europe because of the changes that have been made to environmental policy. Look, what is it specifically, if we don't do anything to change the Paris Climate Accords. What realistically are we as a nation committing ourselves to? Uh, the Kyoto Treaty, which was, as you know, a, a dead letter here, times about four. I mean, we use a different baseline, but we're talking about a 26 to 28% cut the first time. And this is where the remainders in the White House, they're not just all Obama holdovers at state. There are also Trump hires at NSC State and elsewhere who are in the remain camp. What they're saying is, no, 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 we'll just stay in and we'll adjust our promise downward. You know what they're not telling you is, A, it's like a galaxy with a galaxy quest. Do you people even read these agreements? You can't do that. It's expressly not permitted. Now, what if you did anyway? Let's take the political hit for breaking the agreement that might actually get out. Very smart, right? If you do that, it's only the first promise. The Paris Treaty did away with the need to ever do this again. It builds in a new Kyoto Treaty, tighter, more stringent, every five years, forever. 
and China and everybody will gladly pay us the twenty thirty for a hamburger today. And it's twenty three billion dollars in wealth transfers a year, just the wealth transfers a month. And we take the hit now, and they're always they promise to do essentially what they plan to do, business as usual. So we're talking about greatly handcuffing ourselves. Absolutely, absolutely um, giving up on President Trump's energy and economic agenda, and then tightening it. This goes every five years, forever, until we wise up and realize the rest of the world was playing us. That's what's at stake. It's the Kyoto Treaty by times several, just the first time, and then square it, you know, make it worse every five years, forever, for no measurable impact on climate. And it's a, and it, this is direct dollars, too. This is not just our shutting back, uh, throttling back on our carbon dioxide, right. our greenhouse gas emissions. This is also billions of dollars we are directly transferring because of this treaty. Right. President Obama promised, took part in uh, this Copenhagen Accord, which was a promise by the rich countries to give $100 billion every year. And they said in new money, uh, they're trying to just rebrand old money as climate aid, and they've already rebranded uh, or a, a quarter of our foreign aid is climate aid, they call it, according to the Washington Post, so you know it's true. But our share, if you just go by our share of the U.N. budget, which is how they do it, is $23 billion per year. And the rest of the countries, India in particular, said, that's a good start. India said, this is the greatest threat facing mankind, so you better pay us $3 trillion. So it's apparently a lesser, it's a lesser threat than not receiving $3 trillion. <laughs> So, so, and and we have to do this. Um, by the way, of the rich countries, who are the rich countries? Who are defined as the rich countries besides us? They're playing a little word game here, so they didn't have the us and them actual categories that they had with the other treaty. But each country, depending on who their leader was, and we got a fairly radical progressive leader who committed us once he was gone to a to be the really the richest country. We're, we're taking the biggest hit. Then we've got the usual targets, which are principally Canada, Japan, United States, and Australia. Um, the other state will be with at some point, 20, 30, or beyond, and then we'll pretend we took and control the weather. But until then, it's all up to you. And then, you know, it's Western Europe. It's it's Norway, it's Denmark, and so on. Um, but remember, it's Germany, which now the academic and the environment minister have called electricity a luxury good because of what they've done with their renewables policy. That's actually President Obama's express model. You and I spoke about Spain, Germany, and Japan, that silly speech he no longer gave after he was outed for having Spain, Germany, and Japan be renewable energy disasters. Well, Germany's electricity prices have led to a new term, energy poverty there in, in Germany, uh, energy almut, and they're killing seniors in the poor. In the U.K., where the papers are easier to read, they killed, they said, 40,000 excess, well, they had 40,000 excess winter deaths up from around 2,500, spiking coincident with these policies coming into effect because you're choosing the poor seniors to, to forcing them to choose between heating and eating. So that's what's going to happen until finally everybody realizes they can play. Uh, Europe can't seem to extract themselves politically. They're desperately hoping President Trump breaks his promise and breathes life into this. And as Mexico threatened, it's because it gives us an unfair advantage if we don't do it. Think about it. It's supposedly to make us all rich, 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 selling windmills to each other, but Mexico, among others, said they're going to start trade wars against us because of the unfair economic advantage of not doing Paris to ourselves if he keeps his promise. No climate impact. 
Basically, okay, okay. yeah, they want us to slow down our economy. They want us to be poorer. Um, they want Western Europe to be poor, Canada to be poor. Of course, we're going to take the biggest hit here so that other countries can pick up where we left off with our slack because China isn't going to stop building coal plants. And nobody else is going to stop building coal plants because they're worried about the planet warming or cooling. Just us. So this is about us welcoming somebody displacing us from the top of the economic heat globally. That's pretty, pretty fair assessment. And again, I spent several years working at investors. There are so many of the bureaucrats who make quite clear, look, this is this is what we chose to be our identity. We're stuck. Instead of getting out of it, we're doing the usual politician bureaucrat thing, and we're hoping to drag other people in and bring you down to our level because we're really the problem. We have an, we have an energy price advantage that others find unfair, and it's increasing as we find more, even as President Obama is this war on hydrocarbons, the private sector and privately owned land made up for it. And so this is the ticket, and it tightens every five years, forever, plus a massive wealth transfer, which they say must tighten forever, for no climate impact. It's a promise President Trump has to keep, cannot break. But remember, not everybody advising him to break it is an Obama holdup. Great to have you on the program. I, I know that you're one. Energy and Environment Legal Institute is one of 40 organizations that is trying to put pressure on, on President Trump to get out of this agreement just because, again, no, no impact uh, on the temperature or on weather or on the climate. Just an enormous economic sacrifice we make for no good reason. One last question for you, Chris, and that is um, of the, the billions and billions of dollars, who controls the billions and billions of dollars once we give it over? <laughs> but whether the committee of our matters, we, there's a UN body set up for this. There's something they have lots of fancy terms. It's called capacity building, which is sort of the John the Baptist. They're going to give them a lot of money now to prepare for the really big money to come. So and it's a UN body that doles it out. A UN. Uh, we're going to. We're just going to give a UN group twenty three billion dollars as our first down payment on destroying our own economy, and we're going to trust the UN group to make sure that they save the planet, huh? Yeah, and the, the good news is they have a, a very uh, corruption-proof record. Now, we're trying to make sure that some of it's, you know, we just rebrand foreign aid as climate aid in addition. But remember, this is principally why that this gives the U.N. an awful lot of money and an awful lot of control, and the two go together and control it because of the money. That's why the U.N. is a big part of the reason why the U.N. is so enthusiastic about this. They get to be the banker. They take okay. the money to give it to They rob people to give it to Paul and take their taste away. No, No, they rob people to give it to themselves and their crony pals. Chris Horner, um, good to have you on the program, by the way, from uh, Energy and Environment Legal Institute. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. We'll be right back. You want to know what I'm amused by? I'm amused that you can go on these sites that are 18 and older, or in the case of the site I'm on right now, 21 and older. And all you have to do is click that's on a little um, box that says I'm 21. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's how it's always been, though. I mean, that way. I, I, what what is the be... point of even doing this? Well, because that way they can be absolved of any blame. If I know, not. but this is just silly. It is. <laughs> that doesn't you know, change anything. I want to know this type of beer that I had over the weekend, and uh, and I was trying to look it up, but it looks like it's not optimized for my PC. 
the website for the for the craft brewer. Also, am I crazy that uh, it doesn't really make much sense to get an age check on a alcoholic website just because? Well, an alcohol website, sorry. Uh, because look, it's illegal to drink alcohol with the age, you know under the age of twenty one, but it's not illegal to look at alcohol. I agree with you, my friend. I agree with you. I, I'm just I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm down with that. I'm trying to find this lemongrass hefeweizen that Mobcraft made makes on its website, and I'm having a hell of a time. I'll do a little digging here. Do me a favor and see if you can find me um, some some places where I might be able to get myself a growler or two of that. That was some fine tasting beer. And what was the company? Mobcraft. Okay. They're a Madison craft brewer. I will do some digging. So um, anyway, I was at a restaurant and they had uh, they had this particular um, delicious concoction, and I was just I don't know thinking about happy hour after the show's over. All right. um, Speaking of uh, sites you're supposed to be 18 and older to go to, any e-cigarette site you would go to would have one of these boxes that asks you to assert that you are 18 years and older. And of course, um, these are products that can only be consumed by people who are, depending on your state, either 18 or 21 years and older. Um, Jeff Steyer is on the phone to talk about the latest with regard to the FDA deeming regulations and e-cigarettes. And Jeff Steyer, I must say, is 18 years old and older. How are you doing? It is always happy hour to be back with you. Isn't it, though? You know what? That's a good segue. Thank you for that. Um, Cheers. Here's to you. The reason I wanted Jeff back on the program to talk about this was the last time we chatted, we were chatting about a really interesting local tactic that might be able to impact the, um, the FDA deeming regulations. The second interesting thing I saw, Jeff, was Judicial Watch. Judicial Watch of the Hillary Clinton email scandal. Judicial Watch of the Freedom of Information Act request on the IRS targeting of conservative groups. Judicial Watch, a, a talented, well-funded watchdog organization skilled in filing Freedom of Information Act requests, has now filed one on the FDA and these specific regulations to find out, among other things, whether or not special interests were conspiring to try to put a nascent public health miracle out of business. That's exactly right. And and the only difference between Judicial Watch and my own work in this area is they know what they're doing. I filed a Freedom Freedom of Information Act request. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And it, it's quite po- poignant, right? Freedom of information. We'll, we'll talk about what freedom of information is. But I filed one of these last year. And I got, at every turn, FDA telling me that it was too broad of a request telling me that if I filed it to get all the information I was actually asking for about their deliberations and what, what went into their deliberations to make this public policy that affects so many people, they told me it would cost more than $500. I, I had, I had, they have this thing on the form when you apply. Uh, are you willing to pay $500 to get this freedom of information? I, so why would it cost that much? And they said, well, we have to go through each and every page 
to redact things that aren't under the Freedom of Information Act request. So it was neither free, but it wasn't actually free. Uh, this is information that consumers can't get through the manufacturers of these products. Uh, they can't even get the truth about the products. So there was nothing free about it, and there's not much information. Uh, but I don't do this for a living. I don't do Freedom of Information Act requests. I did it to let the FDA know I was watching them and wanted more information, but they they outlawed me. But fortunately, we've got Judicial Watch. They are experts at this. And there is one other thing that's different between the time I did it last year and the time that uh, Judicial Watch, which proves that they know what they're doing better than I do, uh, they did it in a new administration, which might be more interested in complying with something that is not only required by law, but may embarrass the the previous uh, leaders of the FDA. There's going to be new leadership at the FDA, so they might be more willing to actually provide the information that they are required under the law to do. And of course, the 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 question is, given the the sort of crazy of the deeming regulations, which literally, as we've explained before, will require pre-market approval um, and regulation compliance on every single element of anything related to the e-cigarette or vaping industry, from the batteries to the coils to the labels to the color of the labels on the liquid to, you know, everything to be regulated as if it were a dangerous drug. Um, it's so expensive that the estimate is up to about a million dollars per application for pre-market approval. So, I mean, it that's, is in, that's right, Vicky, it's inconceivable the, the industry would survive. And you point to the application process and people say, okay, well, they'll have to submit an application. Now, they actually have to submit an application that the FDA, under very bizarre requirements, may or may not be required to approve. They may just say, well, we don't accept any of these products. In fact, because of an other Freedom of Information request, one I believe that was filed by Reuters, or at least Reuters reported on, the FDA had intended to ban immediately, going back last about a year ago, all flavored e-cigarettes, which is just about all e-cigarettes, because they need flavor in order to be appealing to persuade smokers to switch. The FDA had originally wanted to ban all flavors because of what it, it perceived as a risk to children using them even though they weren't the intended users. And the Obama, OMB, Office of Management and Budget, actually redlined it out, crossed it out, and said, no, that's, you can't do that. That's, that's too much. And that will still allow the FDA, if it is still uh, deciding to do this, to simply continue its position of banning flavors, but rather than doing it, in the issuance of the rule, which took place last year, can do it through the pre-market tobacco application. In other words, accept no applications for products that have flavor. So that's why these aren't just simply applications. They could be a death knell for the product. Yeah, and it would likely be the death knell for the product. I'm looking here at a terrific post that was just put up by Prager University. For those of you who are fans of of Dennis Prager and his PragerU.com website, it was just posted today. The estimate by public health experts who actually are being honest about the um, the, the amazing impact of of, a, of an um, an altering, I mean, a truly an industry altering product like this is that it could make it could help just in in the very near future. Twenty three percent of people who smoke cigarettes right now quit smoking entirely. 20, and that's in America. That's assuming. 
Um, you know, the, the lack of ability to advertise and all the different constraints that are already on the industry. 23% of smokers. That is tens of thousands of people not dying because of cigarette smoking at a time when you have got everybody under the sun trying to regulate people who smoke cigarettes almost into poverty. That's absolutely right. 23%. That blew my mind when I saw that number. And then, of course, if you allow advertising, if you allow, um, if you sort of take the restraints off the marketplace, who knows what could happen? Um, these are products I'm all that are 90. 90- on the marketplace so they don't advertise to kids, which none of the responsible companies do anyway, and it's banned for sales both at the local and federal levels throughout the country. But honest marketing to adults is what we would like to see so that basically what you'll have is you'll have this alignment of profit-making industry, which is not a bad thing, to persuade consumers to use a less harmful product than cigarettes. So what you've got is you've got uh, aligning of private for-profit interests with actual public health goals. I would think that's what we want, especially this administration talks about cutting the size of government. You could have private sector doing public health work at no cost to the taxpayer and doing so more effectively than government. Because there's a profit motive. You know, by the way, I wanted to give you the source of, of the number that I just I just shared with you. It's it's um, in Nicotine and Tobacco Research, a journal under Oxford Journals that was published in January of 2016 that estimated that you know, people who smoke cigarettes switching to e-cigarettes um, there'd be a dramatic, dramatic reduction in the number of people who continued to smoke, and the impact on public health would be substantial, measurable, um, and, and and positive, in a net positive. Which is, again, why Judicial Watch decided to file this FOIA, because why would the FDA, supposed to be there helping us, um, you know, make sure that dangerous things are regulated, why would the FDA want to outlaw this industry at the same time essentially protecting the combustible cigarette industry, because that they're going to do fine. You can that's, you don't need to go through pre market approval to put a new pack a new a new type of smokes out on the marketplace. And Vicky, not only did did the uh, Judicial Watch file a FOIA Freedom Freedom of Information Act request, it did so in March of this year. The agency failed to respond in a timely way, and. Judicial Watch is proceeding to press the In FDA. a lawsuit, yeah. Exactly. They filed a suit. We should be very clear. You're right. It's not just a FOIA. It's also a lawsuit that has now been filed. And to your point about Judicial Watch, they are amazingly effective as an advocacy agency. By the way, they've got a number of different um, uh, campaigns that they are engaged in right now, including one regarding um, Sally Yates, you want to go take a look at their website. But on this particular issue, I was very pleased to see them jump in because they get results. And again, you're talking about an agency that's supposed to be ostensibly charged with protecting public health, doing the exact opposite, it seems, especially given the research. Jeff, you and I have talked about the research. You've got the Royal College of Physicians saying that they estimate that that switching from from smoking cigarettes to a product like e-cigarettes is 95% less harmful. That is a, I mean, that is an order of magnitude less harmful. And yet we're trying to find a way to make this, this, this technology disappear. Of course, I use the technology. It's why I quit smoking. But why, you know, there's, there are answers that need to be forthcoming about why 
a government agency with this much power would try to essentially put its boot on the neck of a nascent industry that could save lives. And basically what Judicial Watch is demanding an answer for is, how did you get it so wrong? Right. What, what was your deliberative process that allowed you to get it so wrong? Exactly. Well, it remains to be seen, Jeff, whether they're going to be successful or um, good things are going to happen on this front. But again, going back to one other thing we had talked about, there's also that really interesting tactic that Heartland, Wisconsin is pursuing uh, in that the FDA did not consult or I'm not sure the exact legal term, but didn't confer with local communities about the impact of this regulation yeah. in, in, a, in a city like Heartland, where that is Johnson Creek Enterprises, could put a significant portion of its property tax base on, you know, underwater because yeah. of the impact these, these rules could have. So the tactic used there is, uh, the legal term is coordination, a requirement that federal agencies coordinate with local governments when a regulation may affect them. And uh, you are correct to tie it together with a range of other legal threats against this uh, deeming regulation, against this e-cigarette rule. And when you roll all of them up together, uh, you and I talked uh, just last week about a uh, proposal that I am encouraging that the agency consider to decline to defend it's indefensible position, not because it's just bad policy, but because it also didn't go through the appropriate administrative and rulemaking process. Well, this new Judicial Watch litigation only strengthens that approach because it will, one of the things that the agency, as well as the Department of Justice, which represents the agency in the court, will have to do is to evaluate whether defending all of these different lawsuits with all of their risks of getting the rule overturned, whether it is prudent for the federal government to continue to spend taxpayer dollars defending a rule that may not even make it through the legal system with all the very viable challenges facing it. So the Judicial Watch uh, lawsuit only adds further pressure to the agency and the Justice Department to consider not defending this tactic. And, And Vicki, it's it's, a, it's I, I believe, a legitimate approach for the Justice Department to decide with the support of HHS and FDA to no longer defend this. It is a tactic, everyone should know, that the Obama administration used all the time in concert with environmental activist groups. What happened there was they would have activist groups sue the EPA for not doing its job, and then they would settle. It's called sue and settle. You sue the agency, yep. and then you get a consent decree. Here's what we're going to do. That tactic can be applied here. Absolutely. The Obama administration went further. Not only did it overturn a regulation, it actually uh, effectively overturned a law duly passed by Congress, the Defense of Marriage Act, and it said it was no longer going to defend against that. So it is, I believe, a low hurdle that the courts would require for the FDA to walk away from it. Here's the thing. The, the only the only thing is that this is um, this is a group of people with a small constituency. But I'll tell you what: having guys like you, uh, people like Scott Gottlieb, who's going to be our future um, head of the FDA, folks like the University Research Community, people like you know, Dr. Brad Radu and Michael Siegel, and and uh, folks out there, many of whom never smoked a cigarette in their whole life, to actually you know sort of band together for the little guy in this case, it's huge, and it might actually produce well, results ban, this ban, time. Ban, ban or band together. B A N D. 
<laughs> Jeff Steyer, thanks very much from National Center for Public Policy Research. Always good to have you on the program. Thanks, Vicki. We'll be right back. Tomorrow's program, Judge Jim Troopas in the studio and from Front Page Mag, David Horowitz will be on the program. Everybody have a great day. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.